DiscerningHearts.com presents Villains of the Early Church and How They Made Us Better Christians with Mike Aquilina. Mike Aquilina is a popular author working in the area of church history, especially patristics, the study of the early church fathers. He's the executive vice president and trustee of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, a Roman Catholic research center based in Steubenville, Ohio. He is a contributing editor of Angelus Magazine and general editor of the Reclaiming Catholic History series from Ave Maria Press. He is the author or editor of more than 50 books, including Villains of the Early Church, the book on which this series is based. He has hosted 11 television series on the Eternal Word Television Network and is a frequent guest commentator on Catholic Radio. Villains of the Early Church and How They Made Us Better Christians with Mike Aquilina. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me back, Chris. Talk to us about this villain, Julian the Apostate. I, I don't think he's somebody that we think of often. No, he was emperor for just a short period of time, but he ended up being uh, quite a significant figure in history. If we, we look at, at his position on the timeline, he comes in uh, you know, just a generation after Christianity is legalized. And Christianity, of course, had been legalized by his uncle, who was Constantine the Great. And we know Constantine as the one who issued the Edict of Milan and, and other documents that gave Christians freedom for the first time in history to worship as they wished, to worship freely. And Constantine extended this freedom to all of his imperial subjects, whether they were Christian or Jews or pagans. Constantine, however, could not live forever. He left the empire to his three sons. And his three sons were not as great in the leadership category as Constantine was. And they were also confused theologically. Constantine himself was not a great theologian, but he had a good instinct most of the time for following good theologians. I was just going to say, I have to put a, just a quick footnote. It's too bad his daughter, Constantine's daughter, couldn't have taken over <laughs> because I came to know her through you, a woman of great faith. Yes, she was a woman of great faith, and there's a 4th century church built in her honor. It still stands in Rome today. But no, she didn't succeed him. The three sons did, and they didn't live up to their father's legacy. Let's put it that way. And also, they were pretty brutal. Now, Constantine himself could be a violent man. I mean, he's a man who had his own son put to death because he believed his son to be a threat to his, his leadership. Later on, he discovered that he was duped by his second wife into believing that his son was plotting against him. Uh, and so he had his wife put to death. So Constantine could be a pretty brutal guy himself. His sons picked up that business. They managed to outdo their father. What they did on taking the throne was they, they had all of their close relatives put to death so that they need not worry about any other claimants to the throne. This was a bloodbath. Now, there were two relatives they spared during that bloodbath. There was Julian, because he was just a little boy. And then there was Julian's older brother. And they spared the older brother because he was just sickly and he seemed like he would be no serious threat. So Julian grew up with this as his heritage, this as, as the legacy he had from his family. 
he never forgot it. The emperors kept Julian in good circumstances, in material terms. He was kept in lavish comfort as a member of the imperial family should be kept. And he was given the best tutors so that he could get a superlative education. And Julian, from youngest childhood, really did throw himself into learning. He really devoured the classics. And his tutors encouraged him to to do this. Um, But as I said, he never forgot what had been done to his family, to his father, and to his brothers, and, uh, and to his uncles. He never forgot it. And this gnawed at him all through his young life. As he grew up, he grew into the typical duties of a member of the imperial family. He grew into military leadership. He was dutiful. He did the things that his cousins, the emperors, asked him to do. And he was, uh, he was, uh, he was careful to carry them out and to do what was expected of him. He wanted to continue living. So he did what needed to be done. Wow. Wow. I, I just have to take a, a side note on this. When you think about the legacy of the family, you know, this is the same family that had St. Helena. Yes. <laughs> this, you know, I, but we see this through all out time, isn't it? For many people may not realize that St. Helena was Constantine's mother who went to the Holy Land. Can you mention just a little bit about her? Well, Helena was Constantine's mother, and it's quite likely that she was a Christian from earlier in her life. And she was openly a Christian then after Constantine, her son, legalized the religion. Many historians believe that he got his sympathy for the Christian religion from having a Christian mother. When she was quite old, she made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land with a great entourage, and she set out to discover the sites that she had read about in the Gospels, that she had heard proclaimed in the Gospels, and she wanted to see the place where our Lord was born. She wanted to see the places where he suffered and died. Whenever she went to these places, she had great basilicas built there. Now, some of these, at least partially, still stand in the Holy Land, and they mark the spots where uh, tradition tells us our Lord lived his life, his public ministry. I just had to bring that forward, Mike, because Here's an example that the family that gets consumed by the world, literally, and Mm. the power and the structure and the politics of the world, even may have the saintly woman there and Constanza too, Julian the Posse's aunt, they would leave legacy for others, for the little ones, for the world. I mean, their fruitfulness, it's amazing how God will continue to work through them, even though they're family. Uh, seems to uh, have tremendous issues. And there's a lot of people out there that may be experiencing that same type of thing. You, maybe you saw that, the, the one woman in the, the family who continues to pray constantly and go to church and, and live the faith while it seems as though her family around her is falling apart or doesn't, doesn't appreciate what she's doing. Yeah, Christianity is not genetic, unfortunately, yeah. um, or maybe fortunately. It's not genetic, and uh, it's not necessarily your fault if your children or your grandchildren aren't walking the ways you taught them to walk. We can see that clearly in the case of Julian. Now, Julian faked it for a long time because he knew that that was expected of a member of the imperial family. So he he faked it. He went to church on the feast days. 
he presented himself for Holy Communion. This was part of the package that he had to go through these public ceremonies, and he did all of the time that he was in service to his cousins. In the end, it was just one of the cousins. It was Constantius. He served Constantius dutifully for a long time. He did so in a Christian way, at least outwardly. Well, he really took a villainous turn, didn't he? Well, he did, and I think he took it early on. And and again, uh, you look at his early life, and he's someone whose father and other family members were murdered by the Christian emperor, who put on a great show of his personal piety, who was renowned for his piety and dared to make a standard of orthodoxy for the entire church, the entire empire. So Julian looked at this, and in his heart he said, if that's Christianity, I want no part of it. So he was studying the classics. He was studying the ancients. He was studying the pagan authors, you know, Plato and Aristotle. And also he was studying about the old religion, the traditional religion of Greece and Rome. And gradually he gave his heart over to those ancient mysteries. He began to practice them secretly, in hiding. He began to seek out the teachers of these mysteries, and ask them for teaching privately. He did all of this in secret. He kept it all carefully hidden until the time when he took the throne. Julian was a, a great military leader. Why was he a great military leader? Because he had some natural courage, and he endured the same life as his soldiers endured. In most of these divisions, the leaders lived in comfort while the soldiers slept on the ground. The leaders ate lavishly while the soldiers complained about their rations. The leaders got the heaping share of the spoils of battle while the soldiers got very little, whatever was assigned to them. Well, Julian made a point of sleeping where the soldiers slept, of eating what the soldiers ate, and of getting no more of the spoils than the soldiers got. And boy, did does that win the loyalty of your military. They looked at this guy and they said, now here's a leader who understands us. Here's a leader we can support. And so the military began to throw its support behind Julian and began to say, you know, he's really more of the kind of emperor we'd like to have. And so they began to march across Europe with Julian in order to take the capital city of Constantinople. Well, before they could reach the capital, Constantius died of natural causes, and Julian just breezed into the city as his natural successor. And then Julian took the throne. From this point on, Julian outs himself as a pagan, and he makes clear his intention of repaganizing the entire empire. Now, in order to repaganize an empire that had willingly converted to Christianity, he had to de-Christianize it as well. Mm. Hence the term, the apostate. Hence the term, the apostate. That's right. Now, Julian had gone to school, got a good education, and had some pretty illustrious classmates. He went to school with Basil the Great and Gregory of Nazianzus, two of the great fathers of the church, the fathers Fathers we address as great and recognize as great, they were not too fond of him. And Basil got an invitation to sit at the imperial court. He turned it down. 
Julian was probably a bit bruised by this rejection, this refusal. But Julian wasn't stupid. He was a very crafty leader. And so he went about the de-Christianization of the empire in a very slow, methodical way. He began by excluding Christians from certain fields of endeavor. So he said, for example, that Christians could no longer work in education because, he said, only pagans should be teaching the works of Homer and Virgil and other pagan authors because only pagans could truly understand them. So he removed Christians from the field of education. Then he removed them from the field of law. And so they were outside the ruling class. They were outside the positions of government. So gradually he moved them to the periphery of society. He got them out of the public square. He did this just by diminishing their influence gradually. He did not want to make martyrs because he knew that if he made martyrs, the church would grow and the church would gain sympathy among the pagans. He had learned that lesson as a Christian, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and he did not want that seed to be planted in the ground that he ruled. So he just went about it slowly. Now, unfortunately, he did not succeed. He only had two years to rule, and he did not get very far into his program. But if he had lived longer, you can see how he could have gradually moved Christians out to the edges of society, to the edges of culture, and just diminished their influence gradually till it was insignificant. We'll return to the villains of the early church and how they made us better Christians with Mike Aquilina in just a moment. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. From a letter from St. Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 6. Be strengthened in the Lord in the might of His power. Put on the armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness on high. Therefore, take up the armor of God so that you may be able to resist the evil every day and stand in all things perfect. Stand, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of justice, and having your feet shod with the readiness of the gospel of peace, in all things taking up the shield of faith, with which you may be able to quench all fiery darts of the most wicked one. And take for yourself the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit that is the Word of God. 
With all prayer and supplication, pray at all times in the Spirit, and be vigilant in all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Litany of Humility O Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being esteemed, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being loved, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being extolled, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being honored, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being praised, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being preferred to others, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being consulted, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being approved, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being humiliated, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being despised, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of suffering rebukes, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being calumniated, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being forgotten, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being wronged, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being suspected, deliver me, Jesus. That others may be loved more than I, that others may be esteemed more than I, that in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease, that others may be chosen and I set aside, that others may be praised and I unnoticed, that others may be preferred to me in everything, that others may become holier than I, provided that I become as holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. Amen. The St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology is a nonprofit research and educational institute that promotes life transforming scripture study in the Catholic tradition. Founded by Dr. Scott Hahn and with current Vice President Mike Aquilina, the Center serves clergy and laity, students and scholars with research and study tools from books and publications to multimedia and online programming. The St. Paul Center welcomes you to their free online studies. Whether you're studying scripture for the first time, looking to take your studies to a higher level, or whether you're ready for advanced training, you've come to the right place. In addition, for each track of study, they recommend books that will enhance your study in prayer and build your library of essential works in biblical theology and spirituality. The studies are free. Just visit SalvationHistory.com to view a complete library. We now return to The Villains of the Early Church and How They Made Us Better Christians with Mike Aquilina. There's so much more about Julian the Apostate, but I think we can really learn an important, many important lessons, but a really important one is the need for the Christian to live out the faith, particularly in the home, obviously. I mean, the virtues. Because it's one thing to do lip service and say that I am a Christian, but if I, if I don't have love, I have nothing. I'm a clanging gong, clashing cymbal. I'm all these different things. And the fruits of that can be devastating 
I mean, I know many people that are involved in ministry that will spend all their time at church but not be at home. And their kids, they grow in resentment and pain. And then they end up leaving the, the church because they didn't experience the fruitfulness of that Christian outreach right there within the home. Am I, am I overstating all this, Mike? No, no, no. That's, that's, that's very important because when you find yourself in a circumstance like the one that, that Julian created in the empire, you find yourself in a place where your sphere of influence is limited to the, the, to the home. So you had better do a good job of influencing the people there. You had better set a good example there. Now, ideally, you don't want it to get to that point. You want to be able to act in a Christian manner fully and without any restrictions in the public square. And that's why you have to stand up for your rights. You have to point out the injustice when people try to take your rights away, when they try to restrict your freedom, when they try to repaganize a culture that had been uh, that had been hospitable to Christianity for a long time. Now, Julian succeeded because Christians didn't put up enough of an opposition. And he succeeded to a limited degree. If he had lived longer, perhaps he would have succeeded to a greater degree. You know, we have to push back. We have to stand up for the things that are ours by, by right. Be careful of litmus tests. That's right. That's right. I think we've been able to see that all throughout time. Every generation and every land throughout history, especially the last 2,000 years or more, that we see that. So, I mean, this is a very real concern. It's an everyday challenge. It is. And it's really the same principle behind some of these challenges that we're facing in the courts right now. You know, the response to Julian wasn't always entirely charitable. Julian had to fight at the Eastern Front. And so in order to get there, he had to take his troops through Antioch. And he was eager to get to Antioch because there were pagan shrines there he wanted to visit. And what he found when he got there was a great disappointment to him. He found that the pagan priesthood was in disarray and disheveled and kind of an embarrassment. He describes seeing an old priest kind of walking around in a dirty, you know, dirty garment being followed by a goose. So it's this absurd scene that you have of this priest followed by his goose. And the Christians in Antioch weren't exactly open to Julian. They kind of mocked him whenever he stood up to speak before them, and they would imitate him and they would laugh at him openly. It wasn't exactly a charitable response. It, it infuriated Julian, and it caused him to articulate his program all the more. It's interesting because Julian wrote a book then arguing against Christianity, and he argued about it fairly effectively as someone who had once been on the inside. Mm. He understood Christianity from the inside. Now, many of the church fathers wrote responses to this book, and they pushed back against it. But scholars today say that many of the arguments of the new atheists in our time are really not new arguments. They're arguments that have been around as far back as the ancient world, and they were formulated by Celsus, whom we discussed earlier, a Porphyry a little bit later on the historical timeline, and then Julian the Apostate. And they were answered effectively in antiquity by the fathers of the church. So Julian really did put out a, a very effective challenge to Christianity, but he drew a very strong and effective response. He didn't fail just because he died young. He failed because 
of the inherent weakness of the, the pagan religion. Mm. And, and the truth is that what Julian put forward as the pagan religion was not really the traditional religion of Greece and Rome, because he knew that that was just chaos. It was just a riot of cults that somehow all got the stamp of approval of the emperor, that there was no coherence to it, that it was just all of the things that managed to pass muster with the legal authorities. He knew that in order to be as successful as Christianity, he would have to organize paganism into a religion structured much like Christianity. So he gave paganism a hierarchy that was three levels, just like the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. And he kind of placed himself as the pope over that religion. The emperor would be the pope over that religion. And he tried to mimic the virtues of Christian religion, urging his priests to practice charitable activity, philanthropy, and also to practice chastity. Now, this did not go over very well with the aristocratic priests who were not expected to do this in the ancient world. Julian was not going back to a tradition. He was inventing an anti-Christianity. He was trying to herd the cats of paganism into one, one massive kind of conglomerate of paganism. It did not work. Well, thank goodness. <laughs> yes. Thank yes. God, actually, yes. that it did not work. Mike, any final thoughts on Julian the Apostate? Any gleans of wisdom that come from you in just reflecting on his life? And I also have to say real quick, thank God that you do the work you do with the Fathers of the Church. A wonderful book, a wonderful website. So you can also see those ancient responses. But any final thoughts? I guess the final thought is this, that in Julian, in Julian's story, we see very clearly that his his impulse against Christianity came from an early childhood trauma. You know, it was from the example very near to him of Christians not behaving in a Christian way. And so he saw Christianity as hypocrisy. It's important for us in all of our private as well as public dealings to be truly Christian, to strive to be saints, to set a good example for the people who are near to us so that they, when they get older, won't come to be known as the apostate, the one who was Christian and left. So much depends upon our witness. So much depends on our example. But ultimately, so much depends upon the freedom of those who have received the gift of faith to stand up and accept that faith and, uh, and take it forward, even in spite of the counterexamples they've seen. I'm going to stand up and say amen. <laughs> Well, thank you. And thank you for having me on the show, Chris. Thank you, Mike. You've been listening to Villains of the Early Church and How They Made Us Better Christians with Mike Aquilina. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, and if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for The Villains of the Early Church and How They Made Us Better Christians with Mike Aquilina. <laughs>